We live and die. Christ died and lived. And because of that, we know that for us, death is not the end. That's the message. Any questions? That's what the resurrection tells us. Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you also will live. Several years ago, I had a rare privilege to preside over a funeral on Holy Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. The church was still decked out from the tenabre that we had had the, the night before, the Good Friday service, and the cross that we had on stage was still shrouded in black. It was an interesting moment as we embrace the reality of death, but also the hope that we have in Christ. It felt like that moment was analogous to our life, because in some sense, as Christians, we all live somewhere between the reality of our own death and the hope that we have of resurrection. It's hope, it's faith that allows us to embrace the fact that death is not defeat, that death is in fact in Christ swallowed up in victory. That day, we used a passage of Scripture that you will commonly hear at a Christian funeral. We're going to preach from it today and study it. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to travel through the whole chapter today, but we're going to begin by reading just the first verse. Now, brethren, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Let me just give you the setup here. What we are about to read is Paul's review for one of his churches of the gospel, the evangelion, the good news, which is what it literally means, that is the core message of Christianity. Furthermore, Paul says it is that message that you have professed and on which you have made your stand. They have built their life on this. Many of these churches are now facing that famous persecution. Tens of thousands of Christians will die because of the gospel. What we're going to do as we go forward now is see what that gospel is. And then as we go into the chapter, we're going to explore the implications of it for us. So let's move on, beginning at verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul is simply reviewing what is commonly held in the first century church. So, let's just capture quickly what the gospel is. And the first part of it is the familiar part. Christ died for sin, according to the Scriptures. We understand that Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That was from Peter's letters. Paul talks about it. All the epistles do. Jesus himself said that's why he'd come. We see that very clearly, but that's not the whole of the gospel. 
The gospel, according to what Paul is reviewing here, is not just about the death of Christ. He goes on. Christ died for sin according to scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised again also according to the scriptures. So the first thing I want to tell you today is that you can't have this halfway. There is no gospel that removes the idea or the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus. What you have is a half gospel, and that gospel is powerless. You know, as, as a society, since the age of reason, since the age of enlightenment, we have made appealing to our sense of reason the highest virtue, and we have actually put faith underneath that. As Christians, we've, we've caught that as well. We talk faith, but what we really want is proof. <laughs> we want it reasoned out. See, we want facts. Paul is clearly reminding the church here that the gospel requires more than reason. It requires a step of faith. It's very important. If you remove the notion of the miraculous because it seems unreasonable to you, you frankly remove any reason to pursue God at all. I mean, last time I checked, that God is, is, is a pretty miraculous notion. So if you want to go through life and accept the supernatural reality of God, but everywhere you see the miraculous somehow say, well, that can't be, well, then you're contradicting your own statements. To believe in God is to believe in the supernatural. To believe in the supernatural is to believe in the miraculous. So what is driving our passion to talk of the resurrection is less than historical. All around the world today, most of Christianity will be celebrating the, the resurrection of Jesus. But for some, it will be Christ is risen with an asterisk. <laughs> It'll be Christ is risen, asterisk, reported by the early believers. Christ is risen indeed, asterisk, metaphorically speaking. Christ is risen, asterisk, in a spiritual sense, as we all will be raised. See, Paul says you can't get away with that. There's no gospel. There's no Christianity without it. I found the story of someone that was writing to one of these Dear Abby-style columns where they ask questions and get answers, and one lady wrote, Dear sirs, our preacher said on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Sincerely bewildered. The answer came back, Dear bewildered, beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his side. Put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours, and you see what happens. Sincerely, Charles. Yeah, it is a historical fact. That's the idea. It's not that we don't need proof. Paul actually offers three reasons to believe it. First, he says that it was on the third day. The resurrection is an identifiable event that occurred on a specific time. Some would want to suggest that the resurrection accounts were a number of mystical experiences, but it's marked at a certain date in history. Secondly, he refers to the fulfillment of prophecy. All this happened according to the scriptures, just as Jesus did when he walked with the two on the road to Emmaus, who were confused by all of the events, including the rumor of his resurrection. And Jesus said, don't you understand all that the scriptures said? Do you remember last week when we read Psalm 22 and read the details of the crucifixion of Jesus written 1,000 years before as though someone standing there watching him die on the cross on Golgotha were writing it fresh and new? 
the prophecies and their fulfillment, some 300 of them fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, stand as validation of the event. Then he offers a third thing, and that's witnesses. He refers to Peter and all of the disciples. He refers to as many as 500 at one time. And then finally, he says, and I'm a witness. I, Paul, have seen the risen Christ. It's important as we go forward because we're going to read some, some pretty familiar passages. You know the ones. If Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. Our faith is futile. Often when we read it, we presume it's an argument to prove the resurrection of Christ. But it's not. Pay careful attention. It's an argument to prove the reality of our future resurrection, and it uses the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus as proof of it. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is considered an established fact, a fact for which many of the people reading and for which Paul himself would someday be put to death. So it's important that we not only satisfy the reasonability. And if you're interested in some interesting books, you can get Who Moved the Stone, More Than a Carpenter, The Case for Christ, who all explore the legal standard of proof in in any court of law and reveal that, in fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ may very well be the most verifiable event in ancient history. But that's not what this sermon is about. That's just for those of you that are like me, who just need a little help from what's reasonable to then be able to take the step of faith. What Paul is primarily teaching here is that it's not just the cross. We don't just worship a dead Savior. We worship a living Christ. And he goes on and says that if you have it any other way, then Christianity is a complete waste of time. It's a hopeless faith. Let's go down to verse 12, and I want to point out four ways that Paul says if there's no resurrection, if Christ hasn't been raised, then it's hopeless. Christianity doesn't stand as just a philosophy to make life good, a philosophy to have fulfillment in this life alone. It doesn't hold up. There's less sacrificial and less painful ways. (laughs) Let's begin reading at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There's no resurrection of the dead that not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then to be found false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Paul just very quickly lists four reasons why. If you take the resurrection away from the gospel, our faith is pointless. The first thing is that it's false. We are, therefore, false witnesses. The message itself, the thing on which history, all those 2,000 years, have been built on a premise that is a hoax. It's a lie. And what good can come of that? The second thing he says, and it's right in the passage, is it's futile. You're still in your sins. So in other words, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then the cross was simply a tragic mistake. There is no atonement. We have only a dead Messiah. 
without any power to actually make good on that sacrifice. It is that he not only had victory over sin on the cross, but had victory over death itself that allows him to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will never die. The third thing he says is that it's fatal. It's fatal because those who have died with a firm belief in Christ have perished. They died in their sin. And the very thing that we hope for above all fell short in the end. They didn't find life eternally. They have perished. And then the fourth thing he mentions is that it's just foolish. We of all men are most to be pitied. Look at how he says it. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Pitied on what basis? Because we follow Jesus just for what it can do in this life. Paul says that's just not enough. And in the end, the world should just pity us. It's foolish because there are other ways to live your life. That's a powerful thought. What's the bottom line? If there is no resurrection, if Christ was not raised, then we're wasting our time. But then he goes on. Beginning in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So we move from a hopeless faith to a hope-filled faith. Let's read beginning of verse 20, and then for sake of time, I'm going to push forward a couple times so we can capture the highlights of the rest of the chapter. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Go forward to verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. <laughs> what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be just a seed instead, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now go forward to verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, which means we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, without going through all of this, let me just show you how the four things that were true if Christ hasn't been raised are completely negated if Christ has been raised. Rather than being false, it's true. 
If Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, all of us can be raised in him. And therefore, he's the first fruits of the resurrection that was made possible through the work, death, and life of Jesus. So, it is true. What else is it? It's not futile. It's real. Look at verses 21 and 25. For death came through Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So it's real. We do have forgiveness of sins. We have come to new life in Christ. What's the third thing because of that? It's not fatal, but we have life. Look at verse 54. This is the great crescendo. Everything he's built up here. You know, if we, had, if we had music, if there was a background track for this, it would be building to this moment. And then it would open up with the full string section <laughs> and, and maybe a clanging of cymbals as Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? He's almost mocking death. Because whereas in the past death always won, now in Christ we overwhelmingly conquer, which brings us to the fourth point. We are not fools, we're victors. In fact, while others call us fools, in Christ we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's powerful, isn't it? That's the difference between operating just on the side of the cross and embracing the whole work of Jesus, the death and the resurrection. One is hopeless. One is hope-filled. One is foolish. One is victorious. It's huge. All of that to come to this last verse. So the chapter builds this huge case And now Paul's going to bring it home. What's the first word on verse 58? What do you have? Therefore. And he's just got one verse that tells us what ought to be true in our life as a result of this. And they're pretty simple. The first one is right there. Be firm. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. You see, that's what our hope-filled life in Christ because of the resurrection ought to give us. It ought to give us such strength in our faith that the arguments of the world around us, that our own propensity to doubt our questions, our lack of full understanding, don't shake our ability to say, this I know, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. My dad called me Thomas, and yes, he named me after Doubting Thomas, the famous naysayer in the resurrection account. Thomas who said, unless I see him and put my hands in the wounds in his hands and in his side, I'm not going to believe. And I used to say to my dad, Dad, why did you name me after Thomas? And my dad said, I like Thomas. I think the other disciples would have done the same thing. When Thomas was firm about something, he was ready to go die with Christ. But he needed a little more. He was the show-me guy. Little did my dad know how perfect that was for me. As I came of age, what was so easy to believe as a child really all became questionable for me. And I was in a setting where I felt I couldn't really share those doubts. And I confused the presence of doubts as the absence of faith, as though the two are mutually exclusive. I didn't understand that doubts are just a part of life, and so is faith. We can grow in faith. And the doubts can drive us to God 
and deepen our faith. But at the time, I had all these questions. I never really verbalized them because I was the preacher's kid. I had to set the standard. I liked being the good guy. But inside, it just all seemed like a hoax. And I remember the first time I picked up Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he laid the case for the resurrection and the great trilemma of who Jesus is. What kind of man would claim that he was God? And how can we trust in the validity of the resurrection? And as I read those arguments, it just filled that piece of me. Just as when Jesus appeared to Thomas and he put his hands out and said, See, touch my hands. Touch my side. Thomas got on his knees and said, my Lord and my God. It was the reality of the resurrection that I kept coming back to as my faith began to grow as a young man into what it is today. And even when I was shaky, I was able to stand firm because I could point to the empty tomb. Therefore, stand firm. Second thing he says is be faithful. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Be faithful to the work. Make resurrection priorities and choices in your life. If you believe that the resurrection is real, ask yourself if the choices you're making are on the side of the dead or the living. Are you chasing after things as though we are following Christ in this life alone? Or are you making choices and serving in a way that is eternal? And is faithful. And then the third thing he says, this is my word, but I think it's in there. Be fearless. He says, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Be fearless. When I know that I have the victory overwhelmingly through the Lord Jesus Christ, that even death is swallowed up in victory, what do I have to fear? Fearlessness and boldness should mark the life of a resurrected child of God. You may have heard the story of a four or five alarm fire somewhere out in the agricultural community in the Midwest. Four different towns had shown up, and by the time they all got there, the field had just come to a blaze, and they were standing on the outside looking in, seemed pretty futile. And then all of a sudden, late to show up was a single engine from the smallest town that had been called up. Without even stopping, they drive right down into the middle of the fiery field. They frantically begin working from the inside of the flame, working their way out, and gradually extinguish the fire. Well, this made national news. And that little volunteer fire department got a cash prize. And the day that the gift was given, the big city news came. And the TV reporter came up and said, what are you going to do with the money? And the chief said, that ought to be obvious. We're going to fix the brakes on that darn engine. Most heroics come by accident. Amen? But Christianity is filled with a tradition of true heroes who faced fierce lions, who faced persecution, some who faced crucifixion as their Lord fearlessly because the sting of death had been removed. Think about what would have happened if that company had been able to actually make themselves fireproof. That would become their normal approach. Just go right into the fire. Think about this. You and I, because of the risen Lord, we're fireproof. Christ said the gates of hell will not even prevail against us. That's what we ought to be because of the resurrection Sunday, fearless in our faith and faithful to serving him. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for the grace that is ours through the cross and the victory that is ours through the empty tomb. Father, I pray that wherever each person is here today is in their spiritual journey, they'll take one step closer, one step, perhaps some a full giant leap into full belief in you as their Savior and as their Lord. But thank you, Father, that you meet us where we are. For those of us that need it, you open your hands and say, look, here I am. But then you exhort us as you did Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Lord, increase our faith. Increase our courage. In Jesus' name, amen.